Welcome to PTSD 911 Presents. My name is Conrad Weaver. I'm so glad you decided to join us today for the program. This podcast is for first responders and for those who support first responders. So thanks for joining us today. Mark Meinke is the host of the Operation Tango Romeo podcast. He's a veteran and has a lot of things to say about trauma and its effect on one's life. His show features some of the biggest names in trauma recovery and healing. And today, he's my guest on the PTSD 911 Presents podcast, and he talks at length about his journey to wellness. So stay tuned for this in-depth and serious conversation and be uh, aware that we we talk in detail about some pretty serious issues related to PTSD and trauma. And so if there, and there may be things that uh, will trigger some folks in this conversation. So I want you to be aware of that and always encourage you to reach out for help. If you are needing help, if you are sensing that you need to see someone uh, to get help that you uh, perhaps need. So please do that. And we'll be sure to put some phone numbers in show notes below uh, if you need to reach out for help. So here on the PTSD 911 Presents podcast, we talk about mental health and wellness for first responders. And our goal is to have deep conversations that inspire and motivate first responders to take care of themselves and their peers when it comes to mental health. So if you're watching on YouTube, I encourage you to log in and let us know in the chat right over here where you're from and if you're a first responder or not. And while this show is pre-recorded, we do monitor and engage on the chat. So we'd love to connect. And if you haven't subscribed, please hit the subscribe button. We're really making an effort to grow our audience to over a thousand. YouTube does some magic with that. If you hit a thousand subscribers, you get more visibility for some reason. And so we, we want to hit that goal as fast as we can. So help us out with that. We'd really appreciate it. And I would really love to hear your review and comments about the show. So leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you're listening there or here on YouTube if you're watching. I'd really appreciate any kind of feedback you could give us. And now here's my conversation with Mark Meinke. Well, Mark, welcome to PTSD 911 Presents. I'm so glad to have you on the show today. It's my honor. Thanks for having me. So tell me, how did you get involved in public service? Public service as in my military service? I know you were in military, but you also, uh, you, you hanging out with first responders too, in some way, how did, what, what got you started going down the path of serving, first of all, your country and, uh, and serving your communities and in, in what you're doing? Well, if I'm going to start at the beginning, I'd say my answer was desperation. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, a total ding dong in high school and, I spent more time on my motorcycle ripping around than I did studying for, I even missed one of my final exams. I just <laughs> forgot. I was out ripping around on a motorbike. I thought I had a free day, but I get back and it's like, yeah, we'll just give you 50%. Good. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think I dropped out of about as many courses as I took. And once I got on the other side and I actually graduated some high school somehow, I thought, uh, whoops, <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> now <why not? laughs> my choices are rather limited. And, um, uh, I was working at Tim Horton's donuts with my skin tight purple polyester pants working, uh, the night shift from, uh, 11 uh, PM to 7 AM. 
And this is where I made my decision because the guys that would come in, all the regulars, um, I could do the math pretty quick that, oh man, these miserable people that are just bitter <laughs> about the life that they didn't have, that's going to be me if I don't pull my head out of my butt. So mm. I'm going to join the military. And I thought it was going to be as a medic. And uh, so I started going through the process and I could have sworn they told me that I got in as a medic. So I had a going away party and everything else. And then as the date grew kind of closer, I hadn't heard from them. So I went back down to the recruiting center and like, hey, uh, when do I ship out there, boss? And they're like, oh, no, no, you, you misunderstood. Uh, you competed for the slot. You didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Already had the party. So what else do you got? Music to a recruiter's ears. And he goes, well, do you like camping? <laughs> How about the infantry? I, I said, fine, I'll take it. What is it? And I had no idea. Then, well, mm. it's a whole lot of long walks carrying a rifle and shooting at stuff and blowing stuff up. I'm like, what the hell? Sure. I'll give you the next three years of my life. Let's, let, let's do it. And, uh, and I remember the thought process too, as I was asking a couple of questions and looking at the mannequins that they had there and, uh, in, in different uniforms. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do this thing, I might as well test myself and find out what I'm made of. Cause if I'm going to do it, I should do it. And infantry, it was, <laughs> and test myself, mm -hmm. I did. And, mm -hmm. um, and that's how it started. Um, but I really was not in the mental shape at the time. I had had a, a pretty violent and rough childhood uh, for so many reasons. And the self-esteem just was not there. So I didn't really know who I was or what I was capable of or had any idea about my identity. So going into a um, trauma-rich environment, <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I didn't really have the prerequisites for it, but off I went anyway. But you then served overseas in conflict zones. I did. Uh, when I joined the military, uh, that's when Gulf War Part One broke mm -hmm. out, and if you recall, everybody thought it was World War Three. And, uh, of course it wasn't, it lasted about two weeks, I mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then it was all over shock and awe. Mm -hmm. And, uh, with that, oh, well, duck that bullet. So when I joined, I really thought I was going to war. I thought I was following in my granddad's, uh, footsteps. Mm -hmm. This is the big one, mm -hmm. but it wasn't. But uh, after basic training, then off to battle school, uh, close to the end of battle school, we started hearing rumblings about the former Yugoslavia. I guess it wasn't former at the time. It was still Yugoslavia breaking apart and devolving into civil war and thought, geez, I might end up going there. Mm. A couple of years later, I did. Mm. And uh, so the, the war in Yugoslavia, the dissolution of the whole union was from 92 to 95. I mean, the fighting started before and kept going after, but uh, when it was officially a war it was 92 to 95. Mm. And I was there right in the middle of mm. 94. So when we got there, uh, lots of destruction had already happened. Entire villages were just rubble, mm. leveled, flat, and others were 90% uh, destroyed with just a couple of buildings still standing. And that's where we lived. We lived in bombed out villages, mm. um, piles of rubble across the street. And uh, 
and that's that's where we were. But all the things and all the experiences that I probably had, not uh, unlike what's happening in Ukraine right now. Oh, very similar. Yeah, rubble is rubble. Um, it's amazing mm-hmm. what artillery shells and mortar shells will do to a neighborhood. It's unbelievable. And until you actually see it and smell it and taste it, um, and then and and meet the people where they're like, that was my house <laughs> right there, and uh, got bunkers all over the place in case more shells came come flying in while you're there. Until you've lived in that environment, it's impossible to understand. You know, you can read about it, you can see it on TV, but you don't understand it if you don't experience it. It's just one of those things. But um, I had numerous, numerous events uh, occur while I was there from guns being pointed to my face, even at a, a rocket propelled grenade and an RPG pointed at me. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's fun. <laughs> By a drunk, very nervous Serb. And uh, <laughs> so you're just like, oh, I wonder if he's, his finger's going to twitch and I'm going to be <laughs> eating that thing. Lots and lots of things like that happened. Um, and also the things that you see, uh, the desperate refugees um, and other stuff that I won't war porn your show with. Um, but the worst of the worst, I had the uh, for, good fortune, the bad fortune, whatever it is, but I saw some of it. Mm-hmm. Um, pieces of bodies and that that I nobody should really see. And it did a lot of damage uh, when I, I started to see the effects of it while I was there. But in 1994, nobody was talking about PTSD. That's for damn sure. And if they were, uh, they didn't call it that. They would call it something else. Um, but it would be a sign of weakness, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was definitely not something where there was any help available. And if there was, you'd never ask for it. Never, never, never. And, uh, I knew something was wrong because of the anger outburst that started while I was there. Uh, a couple of friends had died while I was there. And, um, when I got home, it was a shit show. Mm. It was a mess. Um, I could not contain myself. I was punching holes in walls, even punched up my windshield of my car. Mm. And I thought, well, that was dumb. It's gonna, <laughs> now I'm going to have to replace that damn thing. And, um, I, I just could not keep my poop in a group at all, but nobody was talking about it. All I knew is I had to get out of the, the military because I knew that something had snapped and I had had my max, but I didn't know what that meant. I also did know that it doesn't get better with time. <laughs> it gets worse. So I went 23 years without being diagnosed mm. and uh, I was in my second marriage and I found myself um, yelling at my youngest boy, who was only about seven years old at the time, Dawson, what the hell is wrong with you? There's nothing wrong with my kid. There was something wrong with me. And I, could, I just saw his face melting mm-hmm. as like I was hurting my kid with my words and with my anger. My wife put my, uh, her, her hand on my shoulder and said, Mark, they're, uh, they're just crumbs on the floor. We can clean those up. And then I finally got it. And that uh, night, I made the first phone call to the Royal Canadian Legion because I didn't know where else to go. And they were Johnny on the spot, man. They were freaking awesome. Bing, bang, boom. Uh, had an appointment with them. Got myself down to, uh, 
the uh, Legion Command, and I started to understand, oh shit, <laughs> this is uh, this might be actually be related to my service, which I denied for at least two years. At least two years of being, even after I got the diagnosis, I call it the giant rectal exam. <laughs> oh, it's brutal. The five, six, seven hundred questions that they ask you, whatever it is. And uh, you go through that meat grinder, not a good time, but necessary. And um, even a year or two of therapy and everything else, I still didn't accept that this was from my service. I just thought I was an asshole. <laughs> and, um, it's a tough, tough road, and it's a road most people don't have the courage to walk at all. Do you think that's typical with uh, not only veterans but first responders? That yeah, I'm just, I'm just a, I'm just an idiot, or I'm just an asshole, as you say. Uh, they don't really realize that it's from the trauma. I think that's the most, that's the majority, and um, even those that are that are in treatment, I, I don't think enough people come to the conclusion that oh. The, my behavior or the side effects of an injury. Now that doesn't excuse it. Um, military folk are big on, on accountability, right? No excuses, period. Um, no room for excuses in a, in a life or death environment. And that gets ingrained into you really deep. However, it's not an excuse. It's a fact. If you're bleeding, you can't just will yourself to stop bleeding. You know, if your leg gets sheared off, nobody goes, oh, what a lack of willpower. Grow it back. <laughs> it's like, no, my leg got sheared off. And PTSD is a neurological injury. And, and people need to understand that. That was a tough decision for you, wasn't it? It was a thousand pound telephone. And I, I don't know why it's so hard to ask for help. Like, I really don't understand the psychology of it. All I know is it was. Um, just accepting that I was injured from my service. Cause I think the mentality is, and, and it's not true, but the lie that we tell ourselves is that, Oh, I'm probably the only one. I'm probably the only one that got hurt. I'm probably the only one having issues from the tour. The tour wasn't that bad. You know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't Afghanistan. What's my problem. So it's, it feels like an admission of losing something like you're got last place in a race or, or something like that. And uh, so that shame and that shame, I think comes mostly from a lack of understanding mm. and, and a lack of awareness because now all these years later, and I've been on the healing road about six years, give or take. And uh, uh, I hear people that have tons of time in that particular zone saying, I can't believe there's not more people <laughs> that are, that are suffering because of that, Flip in place. And uh, like, oh, geez, I, I thought there was just a couple of us and I'm, uh, I, I'm the guy that uh, ended up at the end of the line. That's the lie. I think that is so ubiquitous with, with people that are dealing with trauma that it, it's, you, you're all alone in this. And I think, you know, even when I was working on my, my film about addiction, that's the lie that they believe as well. You know, I'm the only one who who can't stop using heroin. I'm the only one. You know, I'm I'm alone, and must be my problem. It must be something with me. Well, and it's what uh, society tells us too. You know, um, if you have mental health problems, you're at the 
bottom of the barrel. Mm-hmm. You're at the end of the list. You're the um, most useless human being out there. And it's in our movies and in our TV. And, uh, and I don't know if it's even starting to change yet. Mm-hmm. I see depictions of PTSD on different Netflix things. And um, it's depicted in such a horrible way. You know, it's depicted as though um, you are weak. Mm-hmm. If, it, if, you, if you are injured by this, because they don't see it as an injury, they see it as, oh, you're just not tough enough. You're not strong enough. Mm-hmm. Didn't have the mental fortitude. You know, um, you're, just not, you're just not strong enough to handle that kind of thing. And that's not the case. That's not what it is. That's like saying you're not strong enough to not have your legs sheared off from a landmine. Mm. Like no douchebag would say that. Mm. But it's the same thing. Uh, nobody is immune from a neurological in- injury. And that simple message is what needs to be out so that more people will put their hand up and go, yeah, I think I got a neurological injury. And one of the challenges too, is that a great deal of the DSM, which is the, uh, the manual, all the shrinks use, uh, a great deal of the symptoms for PTSD are found in other injuries like TBIs, traumatic brain injuries, which are actual physical trauma to the brain, like you get hit in the melon, uh, or concussions from firing large weapons. So those symptoms look a whole lot like PTSD. And mefloquine mm-hmm. poisoning and other um, horrible poisons that affect the brain, that cause neurological damage, what do you know? The symptoms are similar, if not the same. So People don't know which battle to fight, which tree to climb. And uh, I, I think we got a broad spectrum it and, and treat it all, you know, because if you're only mm-hmm. treating PTSD with talk therapy, well, what if he's got t- a TBI and you just didn't catch it? Maybe do a brain scan, <laughs> you know, know what we're talking about. And for whatever reason, mm-hmm. neurological injuries are the only injury where we don't ask for an x-ray. You know, nobody puts a cast on your arm before they x-ray it. Got to see what the hell's going on. Yeah. And uh, it's the same with the brain scans. Everybody should be getting a brain scan. That's one of the things that Dr. Amen in his clinics that he preaches, he was like, you know, we're the only medicine that doesn't look at what's wrong, you know? Yeah. And yeah, that's uh, interesting that you mentioned the DSM a few weeks ago. Now, a few months ago, I guess I had uh, the privilege of speaking, and I don't remember his name, but a psychologist who now lives in Florida Keys who helped get PTSD into the DSM, and he's now working with people to change the D to an I, so that it's an injury, yeah. and that it's not necessarily a disorder. I think there's a big dis. Big, a big difference there. And the D definitely has created this stigma that oh, you have a disorder, which makes you immediately think if, if I know I have a disorder, I must be really screwed up, you know? So it gives me a different perspective to say I have an injury versus a disorder. But just before our, uh, this, I just had, got off the phone with a scientist uh, who said uh, post-traumatic stress. So you have a, a neurological disorder. And and even though I talk about it all the time and I've got all these uh, episodes of my show, <laughs> I still don't like hearing it because it's uh, it just sounds gross, but it's also inaccurate. 
you know, and, and I don't know what, why the ego gets involved there and doesn't like that particular word, but it, it, it's just not accurate. It is an actual neurological injury. And if it's not treated as a neurological inju- injury, well, how are you going to treat it if you don't even call it what it is? Yeah. I think part of it has to be, has to do, this is my idea, that if you call it a disorder, it, it's something you are. Whether, where, where, rather than an injury, it's something that's done to you. That might be the difference yeah, I, of how we, in our head, you know, kind of process that. I think that's wise. I think that's a really good insight. And that's uh, got to be it. Because that's why, for whatever reason, the word disorder doesn't sound very nice. doesn't land well. It's, um, mm-hmm. yeah, because it feels like it's a comment on, on the quality of you as a human being. And it's just not accurate. Yeah. So in your process, in your journey to wellness, what were some of those things that you were able to do or that happened along the way that helped you uh, process these things and get to a better place? Well, there's a few. Um, Early on, I ended entered into a peer support group for injured veterans. And that peer support group helped me come to grips with and accept that this is an injury and that I'm not alone and that my story is not terribly unlike other people's stories. I'm not the only asshole out there. And um, (laughs) actually, as the, the guy that invited me into the group, he says, uh, the sooner you accept that it's you, that's the asshole, <laughs> the better. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so true. So true. I didn't like hearing it the first time, of course, but it's completely mm-hmm. true. I am the asshole. And <laughs> once you get that, um, that it's not everybody else that, that, um, has a problem with you. It's you that has a problem with everybody else. And, um, it's not their fault. No, it's not the world's fault. So the whole world is wrong, but you're right. No, dude. No, 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 no. This is your programming. And this is because you feel not accepted. Number one, human emotional need, affirmation, right? So when you're a square peg in a round hole in this civilian world, after you get out, um, you feel like you, you are being rejected. And it's a natural human response. When you feel like you're being rejected, you go on the offensive and you reject everybody else. Reject them first. You know, you're not rejecting me. I'm rejecting you. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not fired. I quit. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. um, and that that happens a lot with transition, not just from the military, but uh, first responder services as well. Um, I'm not fired. I quit. And people quit society. You end up mm-hmm. driving truck. There's a whole lot of truck drivers that just, I can't people. <laughs> I can't do any more peopling. <laughs> but what's actually happening is, um, is your tolerance is, anxiety is high. So your tolerance is low and you can't stand feeling like a square peg in a round hole. So you just quit. Say, screw it. And you pop smoke mm-hmm. and you, and you um, isolate yourself. Through, through your profession. So you just don't have to have as many interactions where you feel like, oh man, there's something wrong with me. I just don't fit here. 
and we, we see it in the professions that we choose. Entrepreneurism, though, is, a, is uh, one of the ways and something that I fell into. I was a realtor for about 12 years. Like, okay, this feels less painful because I'm good with clients. I'm good with that. I'm good one-on-one. I'm good if I'm the boss and I'm the one making the decisions. But uh, so many of us have problems with authority that we don't do so hot at jobs. (laughs) The the whole job thing, you know, uh, people would think it's the opposite, but it's not because um, in the army, you don't mind taking orders because you understand that this has to happen and you can't, there's no time to question orders. Uh, We've got a mission and it's all about the mission. Get in the civilian world and there's no real clear, strong life or death mission going on. It's just, we got to sell widgets. Oh, okay. Well, that doesn't seem all that important. And you got to listen to the boss because they're the boss, not because it, there's this greater mission of um, life or death. And if there's no great mission, it's kind of tough to, re- to respect that boss. So if they're operating from ego, you're just like, no. And if you try to intimidate one of us, well, that never goes very well. <laughs> you know, it's like, I've been shot at, dude. You are not scary to me. And um, <laughs> like, you're just not scary. I've been shot at. I've had, I've walked in a minefield. You don't scare me. Uh, yes, I know you're nine feet tall. You don't scare me. I don't care. <laughs> I'll bite you. I'll bite your ankles. But um, it, it, that's all part of the formula that makes it really tough to transition into uh, civilian life. And because of that tough transition, I struggled. I had pockets of success. Um, I actually had money once when I was a realtor. I had a few bucks and, and some properties and I was doing okay. But I lost it all because I couldn't, I couldn't hang on to it. Um, when the marriage mm-hmm. started going south, I, everything went south. And I did not have the strength to deal with it. And, uh, I, and I, I left the business and everything just cratered and I couldn't fix it. Bankrupt, foreclosed mm-hmm. on. Uh, lost everything. Wife left me. I mean, rock bottom. And um, I still didn't think it was me. It was that that mm. woman. She just, it was her fault somehow. <laughs> but um, uh, th- that's the impact that, that it can have on your life. And it's such a common story. My story is common. It happens all the time. And even those that are high performers and, and they have financial success, take a close look at their uh, personal life. Like I suspect Larry King uh, was probably a fairly traumatized guy because he went through six wives or whatever it was. And uh, I'm like, oh, that's a pretty good clue right there. <laughs> if you're burning through wives, like shit through a goose, uh, chances are uh, there are some childhood issues there that are quite significant and unresolved. Yeah. So what was the secret sauce for you to, to get through that? Yeah. So I found you crash and burn after your realty. Well, surviving as long as I did, um, I think my instincts or my spirit, my soul, something, guided me to different things that looking back now, I'm like, Oh, that was helpful by accident. In 2006, I started writing a a book on personal development and published it in 2008. Well, just 
being in that space, because to write that book, I had to read dozens of, of books to sort of um, build a foundation for it. And then when I wrote my own book, I was completely immersed in positive, constructive thinking and being in a successful mindset. Well, son of a gun, that's how I made it because <laughs> I was immersed in it to such mm-hmm. a degree, which you have to be if you're going to actually write a book. Um, that saved me. That kept me, that was a counterbalance. Unfortunately, not a strong enough counterbalance, but it, 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 it let me deal with my own shortcomings a lot better and have a lot fewer shortcomings. Um, toxic mindset is very, very common in the injured community. And it, it's something that has to be dealt with. Because it doesn't matter. You could be doing all the prescription medication, all the ayahuasca. You could be doing all that and not see a whole lot of progress if you don't sort out your mindset. If you don't get rid of toxic thinking, uh, self-defeating thinking, self-sabotage, if if you don't get rid of that, you're just not going to heal. You're going to be glued to the, um, moored to the victim mentality and, mm. or bitter word to bitterness and you're not going to go anywhere and and you have to, you you have to change. Healing is a, is a form of change and you can't heal if you Mm -hmm. can't tolerate change because you have to change to heal. There's, Mm -hmm. there's no way around it. And, uh, if you're not okay with that change, (laughs) who moved my cheese, (laughs) you know, uh, change is scary and Mm -hmm. the lower your self-esteem, which trauma brings on and creates a lot of, um, the harder it is to say, okay, I'm going to change, but you have to, it's that or suffer. Mm-hmm. So pick a lane, man. <laughs> pick you know, a lane. when I was you talking to, to one or the when other. I was working, working with people caught in addiction and people in recovery, they said, you know what? Both are hard. Addiction is crazy hard. <laughs> recovery is crazy yeah. hard. Pick your hard, you know? Yeah. And I think it's a similar to this in, in, in this arena. Got to pick your heart. Accepting the destruction of your life is hard. Building and, and rebuilding your life is hard. Pick your heart mm-hmm. because if you don't, it, it gets picked for you. Not yeah. choosing is still a choice. And right. um, if you don't choose, uh, you, you're walking through hell. If you stand still, you're going to burn your feet. So keep moving. Mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. does, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to use the uh, wrong modality of help the first mm-hmm. five or 20 times, you know, you just keep trying. And that's where my show comes uh, into play too. I've got so many different healing modalities on there. Uh, pick one, pick the one, just listen to your gut, listen to your intuition, follow that, trust your spirit, pick something, but don't overthink it. Just ready, fire, aim. Pick something and start doing it and um but don't stop because you're not there's no magic pill out there except for maybe dan jarvis and uh 220 <laughs> program he might be the silver bullet the magic pill but other than that um even the psychedelics the psychedelics help they'll knock the head off that monster um but the monster keeps walking so mm-hmm. it's it, it's great to take the edge off but um full-on complete healing 
yeah, it, it takes more than just a, a wild ride on ayahuasca. You need more. You got to keep do going. the psychedelics more kind of mask the symptoms and not solve the the underlying problem. No, that's what cannabis does. Um, cannabis is a is a coping mechanism, not a healing mechanism, from my perspective. And if somebody would like to correct me on that, I'm open to that conversation. Um, but they are a medication, just like dopamine or uh, serotonin or, or or whatever else. But it doesn't heal you. But coping mm-hmm. makes room for the healing. It like if mm-hmm. you can. Uh, keep the wolf at, at bay, it gives you time to take a breath and uh, be under less pressure. Mm-hmm. So the psychedelics though, do create real healing, not mm-hmm. complete healing, but a portion of healing. And they do it by providing you with insight that could take five years of therapy to get, because that's the whole point of therapy, to get you to look at something differently to mm-hmm. reassociate with a traumatic thing or damage or, or an aspect of yourself instead of looking at it in a destructive way to look at it in a constructive way or in a neutral way. So it just means nothing to you. That's the whole point of talk therapy and it can take years and years and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. It depends on the therapist. Um, and then mm-hmm. even when it works, how much does it work? You know, uh, but any progress is better than no progress. So I'm not discouraging talk therapy mm-hmm. at all. I'm just saying that it's not the be all sure. end all. Unless you have a, an issue like we talked about yesterday on your show, we talked about therapists who cry when you tell them your story. And then you have another problem. Yeah. And you got to find someone new. Yeah. And, and you get therapists that, uh, yeah. mine thought I was a faker for a little bit. Um, uh, and I'll share on the story. Mm-hmm. I, I had a suicide attempt a year ago. Um, I didn't see it coming, but I, there's too much was going on and I had, I, I hesitate to call it a psychotic break. But that's probably accurate. Um, I had a disassociative episode, so I kind of unhinged from reality because there was just too much on my plate. And I tried to open up my wrists. The only reason it didn't work is I had cut up a bunch of cardboard boxes earlier that day with the exact same knife. And I was in the middle of nowhere. I was out in the mountains, no cell service. Um, it was a beautiful setting, actually, in Kananaskis. Gorgeous. But uh, my brain just did not work. And my firewalls, my checks and balances didn't work. And say, like, hey, this would feel cool. So it was not, wasn't about killing myself. It was about, uh, Hey, this would be a neat sensation to experience. Oh, could you imagine the relief? What a nice nap that this would be. And, uh, so my brain found a workaround for my checks and balances and my firewalls and just said, Hey, this would be a cool experience. Like getting a tattoo that like, I wonder what that sting would feel like. And I tried, I fricking was poking and scraping and, and pulling and sawing and my skin would not break. It wouldn't. And it, I mean, the knife wasn't that dull. So I'm going to call it a, uh, a minor miracle. I'm going to call it that. Somebody was looking after me because I was pushing. Like I was not dicking around. I was going for it. My skin would not break. It was like tough bull leather. Made no sense. Um, but it, but it, that's what happened. 
And uh, I didn't even realize that, oh my God, that was a suicide attempt for like an hour later. And then, I, then it started sinking in slowly. I'm like, no, that wasn't a, oh my God, it was. Holy shit. <laughs> I actually went for it. That was an actual suicide attempt. Oh my God, what the hell? And um, mm-hmm. called my therapist and, and dealt with it. But um, I forget the purpose of sharing that particular story. There's probably a reason, but um, the the long and short is that sometimes all healing boils down to looking at things from a different perspective, from disassociating with with trauma and whatnot. So psychedelics just do it a hell of a lot faster than talk therapy. One good ayahuasca session, and a good session means that you had a trained and skilled guide. That's what that means. And I just remembered why I shared that story. So um, prior to that suicide attempt, um, I, I I felt I was getting close to the edge of the cliff. I, I felt because I was just dogged by suicidal thoughts all the freaking time. So I asked my therapist, I, I, I say this to my therapist, you know, I, I don't know how close to the edge of the cliff I'm, I'm getting here, but I'm feeling like too close, you know, and, uh, and I think something might be able to push me over the edge. I, I hope not, but I do not feel safe. And she said to me, well, if you haven't done it yet, you probably won't. And, uh, just take whatever knife you would imagine doing it with and just hide it. So you're like daring me to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, horrible, horrible therapist. Um, I can't believe she ever said those words to me. But that's the downside of talk therapy. If you get one like that, that's not good. Mm-hmm. Or if you're not ready, uh, if you don't have not mustered up the courage to tackle talk therapy, well, you won't last in it. You'll, uh, as soon as you get uncomfortable, you'll pop smoke and you won't come back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and um, you can't do that. You, you got to keep trying. Like I haven't given up on therapy. But I'm I'm just trying other stuff first. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. after four or five years of it, I gave it a real go. Mm-hmm. No, got to do something. Yeah. So, what inspired you to start your podcast and start your show? What was the motivation behind that? And and now you're talking to people, and you're, you know, and how is that affecting you uh, in your in your wellness now? I pace myself, so. I pace myself with a show. I, when I overdo it with a show, I pay for it. Mm. It's too much. Um, so I've learned to throttle back and to be cautious because when I hear, um, when somebody slips into a war porn story, I live it through them. I experience it through them and it adds to my trauma cup. It's not just a story to me it becomes a life experience <laughs> that that I don't want. I've already got enough of my own. Um, but how I started the show was through peer support. Mm. So I started as a participant and um, eventually I ended up becoming the facilitator. And as the facilitator for a couple of years, we had a fella there from South Africa. So he didn't have access to Veterans Affairs here in Canada. All he had was that peer support group and nothing else. So he would ask, well, how do we preserve these lessons? And so I could share it with my family and whatnot. And say, well, we can't have cameras in here, obviously, but I already had another show at the time, the Mankey Show podcast. And 
as about 60 episodes in and starting to get the hang of it. And I thought, uh, well, how hard could it be to call Fiverr and email them and get a new logo and uh, just start another show? So that's what I did. And so I kept uh, drifting into this lane anyway. But about five or 10 shows in, I thought, whoa, I can't juggle. I'm not a good juggler at all. So I put the Mike Show podcast on ice, even though it was actually doing really well. Uh, put it on ice and I put all my eggs in the Operation Tango Romeo basket. And here we are three years later, <laughs> 224 episodes or whatever it is. And um, the show just continues to grow. Tomorrow I have two pretty significant celebrities that are going to be in studio. Um, and it, it just, it just keeps growing, you know, and I got to keep doing it mm. because of the private notes that I get. And that's why I do the show. Um, I mean, it's neat meeting the celebs and stuff, but it's not neat enough for me to keep doing the show. Like it's just not enough. Um, but the notes I get from people that say, thank you. People that literally say this saved my life. I was suicidal or, um, I didn't have the strength to reach out for help. But after 20 or 30 episodes, uh, of hearing you and, and your guests, I had the strength and I, and I went to therapy. Thank you. Hmm. So there's so many of these and from the, the families as well, I've got uh, children of uh, veterans and first responders or spouses of the same that are like, I, I never understood before. Thank you so much. Um, one guy that I served with reached out to me. He goes all these years later, even though I was diagnosed so many years ago, I never ever understood how this injury affects my life. Didn't get it. Didn't understand. Now I understand because I listened to the first 10 episodes. Mm. Thank you. And uh, the people that binge listen and have listened to every, like over 200 episodes, they listen to every single one, everyone, therapists that have listened to every single show. Um, People, two PhDs that do it Mm. and they learn from it. So I've got to keep going Mm -hmm. because there are so many resources that I have not yet found that I need to find and, and bring to this community so that people can go through the, the show list and pick and choose, cherry pick the ones for you, learn about them, then evaluate and, and decide whether or not this is for you or not. Hmm. What was, has been a, your biggest surprise in doing this show? What, what's been the, the thing that has like, wow, I didn't really expect that result from this show. the reach um i'm an english speaking guy i only got one language although i'm i've been learning french for over 500 days i still barely speak any of it uh, but um it's in 67 countries mm. and that is something else wow the majority of the um uh audiences in canada uh second biggest audience of course is in the states at about a quarter of my audience and it's been surprising to me how unifying these stories are. It doesn't matter if you're American, British, Canadian, Australian, um, or German, it it doesn't matter. Uh, Trauma is trauma is trauma and it binds us all. Mm -hmm. These, these modalities of help are universal and the injuries of trauma are ubiquitous. So 
it, it really is something that binds us all and the whole world needs to heal. Mm. So that's, yeah, that's especially been an these days and after surprise. what we've, ex- what we experienced yesterday, uh, down in Texas here in the U S and the tragedy that's unfolding down there, it's, um, obvious that there's lots of help needed in mental health, in the mental health community and in all of us in a way. Um, there's, there's, like you said, there's healing that needs to take place among probably most of us. And if, if we're really, truly honest. School shooters, school, school shooters are not healthy people. Right. They are deeply, deeply traumatized people. Yeah. Um, they got that, you know, that didn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. And these people that commit these unbelievable crimes were just walking among us undetected. Mm-hmm. Nobody intervened and nobody put their hand on their shoulder and, and, and said, Hey, I got you. Let's talk. So could you imagine a world where people understood trauma injuries? They understood what it is, how to spot it and how to support people with it. I think that's the big challenge is that so many of us you know, we're around some of these folks and we, we've seen them, we've seen their acting out, we've experienced the, the wrath of someone that, uh, you know, perhaps our own family member. And, but we don't know what to do. We don't know how to confront that. We don't know how to approach that. What are some things that I can do when I see someone, a friend, a family member who perhaps is impacted by trauma? What can I do to approach that situation? The first thing is to recognize that the root of all assholes is ego. Mm-hmm. So if, if somebody is really tough to like, they're pushing you away for a reason. They're pushing the whole world away from a reason. So step one is get curious. What's going on with that person? Boy, they're acting like quite the, uh, quite the dick. What is going on? So instead of judging them or getting mad at them, Find some fucking compassion. Put your own ego aside, which is a bit of a challenge, but put your own ego aside and get curious and go, what the hell is going on? What happened to that person? My God, they're acting horribly. Why are they such a mess? What's going on? Well, it's the same for everybody. They don't feel loved. They don't feel appreciated. So some of the signs, and they, they show up in different ways. If somebody is a wallflower or somebody is a, is a boisterous um, person, it's the same thing. Mm. It's low self-esteem manifesting itself in, in opposite ways. So if somebody is shy and a wallflower, don't let them be the wallflower. Sit next to them. Mm. Don't get in, in, in their zone. Just sit next to them and say hello. How you doing? Go about your day and just acknowledge their existence and be a safe, supportive place. If somebody's telling you that they're the biggest, they're the best, if they, they kind of sound like Trump, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, arrogance is always, and I mean every single time, without exception, arrogance is a guaranteed sign of low self-esteem. Mm. So when somebody tells you how freaking great they are, 
what they're actually saying is, I need to say this out loud because it's not how I feel. Mm. I feel less than. I, sm- I feel smaller than. So <laughs> I remember this one fella. I wipe my ass with $100 bills, man. I'm an artist. I could do all kinds of art. I'm like, you wipe your ass with $100 bills? So that's in your head. That's what makes you an important person. That's what makes you worthy. Uh, and if they need to be above others, it's because they feel that they're actually below them. Mm. So if they need to feel to act or say that they are above others, it's because they actually feel that they are below them. Mm. And so when you hear it, know it for what it is. And don't reject them more. Support them. You know, uh, hey, that that's a really big truck you got there. That's really something. Boy, oh boy. You know, that that's that's really cool. Good good on you for having this giant item that you're so proud of. And then listen to them talk about how great their truck is for an hour. You know, um just make them feel like they're enough. Hmm. And with these school shooter types, I don't think uh, too many of them are the boisterous type. Mm-hmm. I think it's the other way around. These are uh, people that have been, that feel like they're nothing. There probably isn't uh, a father in the home. Most of the studies say that that's one of the common denominators. There's, there's no father in the home and uh, they're angry and bitter and feel less than. And now you see me, don't you? is what's going on in their head when they do. It's like, oh, you don't see me, huh? You don't think I matter, huh? I'll f***ing show you. I'm going to be famous. Look at how much power I have. It's the ultimate expression of power, taking the lives of others. You're so dominant that you can snuff out a life. And that's an extreme, because how they actually feel is the exact antithesis of that. Is the exact opposite of that. That's how small they feel. They feel so f***ing small and so invisible and so insecure that the only way they can feel like they matter is to kill. That's the most broken person there is. And those people, they need compassion and help and to be built up, not to be torn down. And then uh, you're going to have a whole lot less school shootings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that is that that is so true. And even I, I always compare this to going back to looking at my friends who were caught up in addiction, and they were the same place. You know, you see someone who's you know you know oh that that's probably someone that's using heroin. They feel so bad about themselves of what they're doing to themselves and their family and their, uh, but they don't care because they're going to continue to use as long as they can, as long as their brain tells them to, uh, because that's, what's masking the pain that there are so many who, although who, there are so many who are working to bring healing and that's, that's the encouraging thing that there is hope. There is hope. And so I want to ask you this in, in your conversations with people from all walks of life and your show, what brings you hope? Other people like yourself 
that uh, see the problem and are doing something about it. I really feel that we are in the time of the great awakening. That's a sort of a buzzword now, but um, that's something that just came to me from source before I'd ever seen it on the internet. Um, but it really feels like we are getting to a time of higher consciousness, which simply means less ego, more compassion. That's it. That's all it is in my mind. And I think we're starting to see that the things that matter and the things that don't matter. What I call California culture is the problem. The idea that if you're not a celebrity, you're nothing. And if you are a celebrity, you're something. That's wrong. Mm. It's not true. Look at the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Those are two damaged people with all the money and all the fame and all the glory. They're not happy people. You know, Johnny would not be doing all the drugs that he does if he felt fulfilled and complete. And he's one of the most successful actors on the planet. One of the most beloved actors on the planet, mm -hmm. on the planet. And yet he drowns himself in uh, big time drugs, all of the drugs. He's a total mess. So there's, the story, the, the lesson there is that um, there's never enough. There's never enough fame because it's empty. It's an empty cup. You're drinking from an empty cup. Oh, that sounds like a Chinese proverb, but it's true. You're drinking from an empty cup when you're seeking fame, when you're seeking uh, even money past a reasonable point. You know, if, if your family income is in excess of 200 grand a year, like you're good. You're, you're fine. You're safe. You've got choices. You can travel like you're good. You know, uh, anything beyond that isn't going to bring you extra freedom or extra, it just brings you stuff. So you can say, look at my stuff. My house is bigger. It's like a, it's like a global dick measuring contest. My house is bigger than your house. Well, that's cool, I guess, but so, so what? I got a Lamborghini. Well, that's also cool. I, I like me a nice car, but so, so what? It, it's, it's all worthless. It's an empty cup that you're drinking from, you know, it, it brings you entertainment, but it doesn't bring you fulfillment. And we see this people like Dan Bazillion, you know, uh, it, it's never, never enough. Uh, Gene Simmons, I slept with 10,000 women first. Ew. <laughs> like yeah, ugh, that's right. nasty dude <laughs> like even if that yeah. number is real which i have trouble doing mm -hmm. the math on that bleh, you know um yeah like i'm, I'm pretty <laughs> embarrassed about uh the numbers that i racked up when i was a young good-looking soldier but um like th that is not something to brag about mm -hmm. dude so mm -hmm. that's the illness of our of our culture it's the california culture the celebrity culture it's um it's not good for anybody, mm -hmm. including the people that, that are succeeding at it. It's not mm -hmm. good for anybody. And uh, I really feel that the whole planet is starting to move away from the image and the flash and the empty cup. And we're looking for substance. We're looking for the shit that actually matters, like compassion, health, kindness, unity helping each other, lifting each other up, not tearing each other down. I really feel the planet moving towards that. 
and the system is 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 resisting. You know, uh, the system's like, no, 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 no. I like my ego. Don't take that away from me. I want this. I, I love being important and power, powerful. It's like, yeah, you're only powerful if we think you are. I think you're just a person who's got a lot of money. That's not important. Mm-hmm. That's just a person with a lot of money. Different thing. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel the whole planet shifting towards that. And that's a healthy thing. Mm-hmm. So I want to kind of start wrapping up here. What I want to ask you this, what's the next big thing for you? I'm deciding on the next book. I thought I, <laughs> I've already started on one. And then I thought, oh, geez, I could do a, this other one that could be turned into a manuscript and it would be good for so many reasons and there'd be so much benefit to it. Then I'm like, oh, I really should finish the first one, which is um, called Ego, The Devil You Know, Three Critical Steps to Leaving Your Past Behind and Becoming Your Authentic Self, which is a lot of the content has been in this conversation. But um, mm-hmm. I, I've got to finish that one first. I enjoy writing. And, um, mm-hmm. I think that that is my small contribution to what I think is the great awakening that's happening right now. Well, I just want to say thank you for doing what you're doing and for bringing awareness to the traumas that, uh, the world has faced and for, uh, offering solutions. So thank you for, for the work that you have done and what you will continue to do, I'm sure. And uh, I appreciate that very much. And thanks for, uh, for for being on the show and for sharing your story. I think that's, uh, we can learn from people's stories. And uh, that's, that's why I do what I do is I like to tell stories that matter. And so when I find those stories that are meaningful, that I believe others can benefit from, uh, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you being willing to share yours. Well, thank you so much. And um right back at you thank you for the work that you do and and again as i told you yesterday uh it saves lives so keep going will do thanks mark for your time and for the insights that you've shared with us today i'm so glad that we could connect and have this conversation and i encourage you to check out the operation tango romeo podcast mark has a ton of great episodes there and i think you'll enjoy each one of them thanks for listening and watching to the show today please consider subscribing. Whether you watch on YouTube or listen on Apple Podcasts, please hit that subscribe button. We'd really appreciate that. Also, if you can make a donation toward our film project, we're almost done. The film's almost done and we are working on on that. And if you want to get your name in the credits, make a donation. All donations of $20 or more will make it into the credits and so if you want your name there please make a contribution help us out to get to the end zone and visit our website ptsd911movie.com for more information about that thanks for watching thanks for listening to the show please take care of yourself and i'll see you again next time right here on the ptsd 911 presents podcast <laughs>